when a celebrity, a politician, or a billionaire is acquitted after hiring a crack legal team, what do you think? When a serious crime has been exposed and the perpetrator is never indicted due to personal connections, you get upset? When it appears that the justice system has been politicized, are you concerned? On the other side of the coin, how do you feel when someone has been railroaded? When they confess to something they haven't done under coercion or threat of more severe consequences? When charges have been fabricated due to political activity, stands taken, or culturally unacceptable statements made. I don't know about you, but the second injustice upsets me even more than the first. But either way, it's wrong. And most are outraged by what they deem to be the blatant injustice that's often seen today. But the greatest injustice of all time is not something you hear about in the current news cycle because it occurred 2,000 years ago. It took place at a trial that for more than one reason might be called the trial of the high priest. The account begins with a look at the prosecuting High priest. We're in John's Gospel, the 18th chapter. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father in law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now for now we're skipping the account of Peter's denial. Last week we left Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas had led the Roman and Jewish forces to arrest him, and the way he responded gave us insight into how we too can face a future that we dread with confidence. You know, Jesus didn't try to avoid the inevitable. He boldly faced the challenges before him. He made provision for those he cared about so he wouldn't have to worry about them. And he did not fight against the Lord's will. When it became clear that he wasn't going to resist and that the soldiers wouldn't need their weapons, he was arrested and bound. Now all the Gospels record that Jesus was taken to the high priest, but John notes He was taken first to Annas, who really wasn't high priest at that time, but had been high priest from A.D. 6 to 15. 
Originally, the position of high priest was one that was held for life, like our Supreme Court justices. But Rome changed that, and it became a political position that went to the highest bidder and to the one most willing to collaborate with the secular authorities. Annas had held on to that position of high priest for 10 years before being ousted by Rome. But even after losing the position officially, he remained the power behind the position for years. He was, in fact, able to get five of his sons, a grandson, and a son-in-law into the role of high priest after his ouster. And he was an extremely wealthy and powerful man due to his position as godfather of high priests. A significant portion of his wealth had come from the court of the temple that Jesus had cleansed twice, an area that had become known as the Bazaar of Annas. It was there that worshipers were fleeced before they could offer sacrifices with the prophets going into the pockets of Annas and his family. So obviously, Jesus was not well-liked by Annas. He had cut off the flow of funds into his pockets. Neither was he liked by Caiaphas, Annas's son-in-law, and the current high priest, or as John put it, the high priest that year. Well, actually, Caiaphas was high priest for 19 years, from AD 18 to 36. And John notes that he was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die, even if unjustly, if it benefited the people. Now, that statement proved more prophetic than he could have imagined. And it made clear that he had already decided that Jesus must die. So the sentence had been passed long before the trial began. But it would be hours before the trial could actually begin. The Sanhedrin would have to be assembled and then wait for the sun to rise before they could officially pass judgment. So in the meantime, Jesus was taken to Annas for a preliminary hearing of sorts, apparently to find a way to justify their decision to have him executed. So Annas began questioning him about his disciples and his teaching. Now, even this was strictly against Jewish law. No prisoner could be questioned in such a way that he might confess to a crime before evidence against him had been presented in court. But they really had a problem here. They really had no charge to bring against Jesus. You know, they couldn't go to Pilate, the Roman procurator who would have to sign off on their decision and simply say, we don't like this guy. He makes us look foolish. Or he has cut into our temple prophets, so we want to kill him. They couldn't say that, so they had to come up with something. So Jesus was questioned in the hopes that he would incriminate himself. But he not only didn't play into their hands, he quickly became the defending high priest. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? 
Question those who have heard when I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I've spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? The prosecuting high priest had, in effect, come face to face with the defending high priest. A deposed high priest was facing the true high priest in this ecclesiastical kangaroo court. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Now, Jesus came to his own defense by simply stating that since he had taught openly, there was no need to question him about his teaching. Any number of witnesses could testify as to what he taught. And if he'd said things that were subversive and justified a trial, surely they could find the evidence themselves. In effect, Jesus refused to incriminate himself. To our way of thinking, he pled the fifth. And they didn't like it. In fact, he was illegally struck by an official for refusing to answer the questions. And he was accused of insolence, of being disrespectful to the high priest. His response, however, was much more controlled than would be Paul's some years later. Just for comparison, let's look at Paul's response. It's in Acts. And Paul, looking at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That was Paul. Well, Jesus, his response was much more controlled than that. He basically said, if I've said something wrong, tell me what it is. If not, why did you hit me? It was obvious Annas was getting nowhere. So he sent Jesus on to Caiaphas, the high priest, at least in the eyes of Rome. Annas, therefore, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, John doesn't record the trial before Caiaphas, but it was well known to his readers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had all recorded it in detail. When he was taken to Caiaphas, false witnesses were brought in to testify against him, but they had a hard time agreeing with each other. Eventually, two of them agreed that Jesus had said he was able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, that wasn't what he had said. He had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was referring to his body, not to the temple in Jerusalem. But the truth didn't matter in this trial. 
And even that false charge wasn't enough to get a man executed, so they kept trying and were finally able to bring a charge of blasphemy against Jesus when he confessed to being the Son of God. Luke tells us how they got that confession. And when it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. And they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Jesus was condemned for telling the truth. He was and is the Son of God. It would have been blasphemy to deny it. How ironic that the officially recognized high priest condemned the true high priest to death. And Jesus is the true high priest, as the writer of Hebrews makes abundantly clear. Speaking of Jesus, he writes, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Now the main point And what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Jesus is our high priest. And the work of a priest was to make sacrifices for the people. As our high priest, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. A sacrifice for our sins. The only sacrifice that would do. And no one took his life. He gave it. By this will, God's will, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he 
having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The trial that took place under the authority of the high priest became the trial of the true high priest. And by allowing himself to be put through the mockery of that trial, the greatest injustice of all time became the means by which we could be justified. Indeed, as we were reminded last week, God can bring something good out of anything that might happen. And sometimes it's the truly horrible things that end up bringing about the most good. That does not, however, justify injustice. Injustice is never right and should never be accepted if we can do anything about it. For as the prophet Micah told us in one of my favorite verses, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Yes, we are to seek justice in this life. God requires it of us, and few would deny the need to fight for justice. There is, however, much confusion as to what actually constitutes justice. And we must be very careful not to confuse biblical justice with what is today called social justice. Biblical justice is based on the moral standards set forth by the Ten Commandments and the royal law which commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves and to do to others as we would have them do to us. And it does apply to both individuals and nations. Just as Micah told us what God requires of us, Jeremiah told those who sat on David's throne what was required of them. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. The obligation to do justice and righteousness was linked together because from a biblical perspective, they are essentially the same thing. And if we would have God's blessing, our personal behavior must be just and righteous, and so must be our society, our social, our nation. 
Zechariah affirmed this with the word given to him by the Lord. Thus has the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. He then noted that great wrath had come upon the nation because they refused to pay attention to the law and to hear the words of the Lord sent by his spirit through the former prophets. If we would be blessed as a nation, we must be a just society, a society that listens to God's word and obeys his laws. That is not, however, how social justice is defined today. According to the Oxford Dictionary, social justice is justice in terms of distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privilege within a society. Social justice today is viewed through the lens of equal outcomes. And that has led to tilting the balance of justice in favor of those who have less than others. Something that was prohibited by God in Leviticus. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. In a misguided attempt to balance the scales of justice, we're being told we must show partiality to those who are being wronged today and to those who were wronged in the past. And that has led to demands for reparations, rather than sadly acknowledging the sins of the past, fostering a spirit of forgiveness in our land, and striving to live just and righteous lives today. Jesus faced extreme injustice, but responded by saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If we would be just and righteous today, we'd do the same. Indeed, the more we learn about Jesus, our high priest, our savior, and our example, the more like him we should be, and the more we as a people, as a nation, can be blessed. Injustice will be on the earth until Jesus returns. 
that does not mean we can ignore God's will as expressed to Amos. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. To accomplish that, let's keep learning more about Jesus. Let's not be confused by the voices we hear all around us, crying for the need of something that isn't biblical. Let's look to Jesus. Let's learn how he handled injustice. And let's be more like him. Amen? Amen. That means we got to learn more about Jesus. <laughs> you know, when those little bracelets were worn that said, what would Jesus do? And people had some funny ideas. And they created their own Jesus so they could do what they wanted to do and say, well, he, he, that's what Jesus would have done. No, no, no. We need to find out what he did. That's the only way. The only way. We can live righteous and just lives. And the only way we can be a just and righteous nation. Look to Jesus. Look to his word. Follow his laws. And become what he'd have us be. Let's commit ourselves to learning more about Jesus.